This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading episode 11 of Here's How. On this show, a councillor against and a planner in favour of the traffic plan for Dublin, the CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre about the effect of cuts, the Iona Institute on religion in education, and loads more. Here's How is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. Make your view heard. Just dial 076 603 5060 and tell the world what you're thinking. Your voicemail may be included in the next podcast. You can find tips on recording your contribution and other ways to contact the show at hereshow.ie slash call. Last November, Paul Murphy, the Socialist Party TD for Dublin South West and two other councillors from that party, were among a mob of anti-water charge protesters who surrounded the Taunishta, Joan Burton's car, and prevented it from moving, shouting slogans and obscenities and banging on the roof and windows of the car for more than two hours. It was disgraceful behaviour. People are entitled to protest... But they're not entitled to detain anyone, whether it's a 65-year-old woman or anyone else. They're not entitled to detain anyone against their wishes. Now we've learned that Paul Murphy and more than 20 other demonstrators are to be arrested and charged in relation to that protest. Claire Loftus, the Director of Public Prosecutions, has decided that at least some of them, it seems, will be charged with wrongful imprisonment. This is an extremely serious charge. Under the 1997 Non-Fatal Offences Against the Person Act, someone convicted on indictment of wrongful imprisonment can be sentenced to life in prison. Paul Murphy was all over the media in the past week with complaints about the way the Gardaí were carrying out the case. To some degree, he has a point. First of all, he says that the charges are both wrong and excessive. Well, that's for a jury to decide. But he also made the point that news of the planned arrests was leaked to Garda-friendly journalists before some of the arrests had even happened. This doesn't seem to have any purpose other than news management. It certainly doesn't have any legitimate policing purpose. Also, the arrests seem to have been unnecessarily heavy-handed. Paul Murphy claimed that eight Gardaí arrived at the house of a 16-year-old protester and none of those detained were offered the opportunity to be arrested by appointment, as is common with people who pose no flight risk. Paul Murphy has accused the Gardaí of political policing. That's a term that's been thrown around a lot, particularly by Sinn Féin. It's a term that has been thrown around a lot without anyone ever really defining what it means, and sometimes it seems that the definition of political policing is just policing that some politician doesn't like. But police are vital to the functioning of a democracy. If the law is not enforced consistently, it quickly comes into disrepute. And if some people feel that the law is not enforced equally on them, then nobody has much of an incentive to obey the law at all. However disgraceful the behaviour of the Socialist Party mob last November, much of it resembles the harassment and violence carried out by extremists in the 1920s and 1930s, the Gardaí and other law enforcement institutions of the state have a duty to enforce the law and to be seen to enforce the law equally. 
It's not so many years since the Guardi were threatening a radio station in Dublin with search warrants because they thought the station might know the identity of a prankster who painted an unflattering portrait of Brian Cowan and stuck it up in the National Gallery. Bruising the ego of a thin-skinned Taoiseach, they thought, was a higher priority than any other investigation they had going on. When they were asked what crime they were investigating, the best they could come up with was the criminal damage of hammering a nail into the wall of the gallery, although no nail was used and no complaint was made. All that might be defensible, barely, if there was the same enthusiasm for prosecuting real crimes. Let's remember that it was the Director of Public Prosecutions, Claire Loftus, who decided that Paul Murphy and his party colleagues should be charged with crimes with a possible sentence of life in prison, when she could have charged them with something much more minor, such as breach of the peace. She took nine months from the incident to decide that. But it is now nine years since the initial report of the Moriarty Tribunal and according to repeated answers to dull questions, the same DPP, Claire Loftus, has still not decided on whether to advise the Gardee on whether to begin a criminal investigation into the bribery and corruption that Justice Moriarty found. And as a result, almost a decade later, the Gardee have still not begun an investigation. With that level of inconsistency, the real threat to Irish democracy is not a few thugs banging on the roof of a car. It's on Garda Síochána. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, dial 076-603-5060 and leave a contribution for the show. The lines are open 24-7 and you can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at hereshow.ie slash call. David Quinn is the director of the Iona Institute. He's also a columnist with the Irish Independent, and he's on the line now. He's written a lot about denominational education in Ireland. Uh, and I just want to get a frame of the, the quantity of the issue, David. As, as you see it, what proportion of Irish people are Catholics? Well, I mean, according to census data, uh, you know, the percentage who say they're Catholic is something like 85%. Um, I mean, that's obviously different from the number who actually practice their faith. Mm -hmm. But the number who are at least nominally Catholic or self-describe as Catholics is about roughly 85%. Uh -huh. But uh, I'm asking more for your opinion. In, as you see it, uh, in, in the way that you define Catholic, what proportion would you kind of guess? Well, if you consider people who will say go to Mass weekly or monthly, uh -huh. uh, it comes to probably about half. But half the population? Uh, half I mean, the population are Catholics, which would mean, I suppose, about 40% of the overall population, 40-45%. Sure, and that's, that's, that's fine. I'm looking at the um, report from the uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops, and they did some uh, research on this. Um, and uh, they researched, of course, the whole population base, both within that, of course, uh, Catholics and of Catholics, so percent of Catholics, not percent of the whole population, percent of Catholics who believe in hell is about 50%. Percent of Catholics who believe in heaven uh, is about 75%. So about one Catholic in four doesn't believe in heaven and the same number for sin. And about 30% of Catholics don't believe in life after death. But the yeah, one, those figures are very odd. They are. The, the one that really shocked me is... Uh, one Catholic in 10, actually more than 10% of Catholics, say they don't believe in God. 
isn't it kind of obvious that when we do the census and there are questions around the way the census is conducted, but when people tick the box for Catholic, isn't it likely, given that a tenth of the people who tick Catholic don't actually believe in God, isn't it likely that they're more saying something about a tribe that they feel affiliated to rather than their religious belief? Well, I mean, that's why I said um, uh, I made a distinction between those who say they're Catholic and those who are actually practicing believing Catholics. Mm -hmm. And and that's fair enough, and, and I think that's probably important for it. At present, there is a controversy about denominational education. And on this podcast, uh, uh, I think on episode nine, we spoke to John Hamill of Atheist Ireland. And he was uh, very exercised over the fact that, for example, Catholic schools, which are funded pretty much entirely by the taxpayer, were doing things like telling parents that they there there was a place for their child, their child was welcome to come to the school, but they had to go and get baptised first. Do you think it's appropriate that uh, people whose salary is paid by the state should insist that citizens uh, join a particular religion? Um, I think it's entirely appropriate that the um, tax system and the funding of schools reflects the wishes of the population rather than the wishes of a particular segment of society, whether indeed be it be Catholic or atheist, all right? The school mm-hmm. system must obviously respond to, broadly speaking, the wishes of the public, because it's the public who are the taxpayers. As to the admissions policy of Catholic and other denominational schools, um, there are lots <clears throat> of children who are non-Catholic and non-Christian and non-religious and unbaptized in Catholic schools. So being baptized is not an absolute requirement to go to a Catholic or Church of Ireland or Presbyterian school or whatever. The baptismal certificate question really only arises under conditions of oversubscription to a particular school. About 20% of schools are oversubscribed, meaning about 80% are not. Therefore, the issue of the baptismal certificate doesn't arise in 80% of cases. Where it does arise, actually, is uh, disproportionately speaking on the south side of Dublin, mm-hmm. because because there's a shortage of school places, mysteriously, in the most affluent part of the country. And actually, I believe one of the reasons is because quite a number of the fee-paying primary schools have closed down in recent years, and all the children who had previously have gone to those fee-paying primary schools and are now obviously trying to get into the non-fee-paying ones, so it's led to... Um, um, uh, an excess of of, um, of demand for the available places. Now, whether the schools be Catholic, non-Catholic, Gael, Scholana, educate together, a shortage of places can only be solved in one way, provide more places. And so that's the critical question, actually, in places like the south side of Dublin. Sure. And the south side of Dublin is a particular place uh, in the country. It has its own profile. But hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people live in swathes across the Midlands, the West and, you know, Leinster and Munster and live in towns where basically there's one school uh, and a 100% of the uh, of the education budget of that town is gone to that school. And as we've said, probably a, a good guess is maybe 40% of the population are observant Catholics. Yeah, well, okay. Um, the percentage of the population that's Catholic um, isn't necessarily correlated with demand for Catholic schools or church schools generally. Britain is a much more secular country than Ireland. Well, well, hang on a second, hang on a second. If you live in a one-school town, which many, many hundreds of thousands of people do, then 100% of the demand for schooling in that town is going to going to that school. I'm going to answer your question. Okay. But just let me answer it. Sure. Um, the, okay, so Britain is a much more secular country than Ireland, and yet there is 
um, massive demand for church-run schools over there. All right. So um, just because the country is becoming more secular doesn't mean that demand for church-run schools is necessarily declining, as the British case amply demonstrates. Now, my own position, and it has been, has been this position since I began writing the column in the, in the mid-1990s, is that the Catholic Church needs to hand over a certain percentage of the schools to be determined by public demand to new patron bodies like Educate Together. Um, and well, give me then. How would you see that uh, that working out in a one school town? Well, it, you would do what the Department of Education did recently in uh, twenty eleven twelve, <clears throat> so three to four years ago. It conducted a survey um, in forty three different parts of the country, involving about I think it was a two hundred or maybe even three hundred schools in those forty three areas, and they asked parents in those areas. Uh, if there was a different type of school available, would you send your children to that school? And uh, they asked a number of questions. That was one of them. Mm-hmm. They found that on average, <clears throat> 8% of parents in those 43 areas would choose a different kind of school for their children other than the local Catholic school. So that's 8% in those 43 areas involving um, at least 200 schools. Okay, I'm not, sure how, I'm not sure how valid that is, David. If you offer people white bread or no bread, they'll probably choose white bread. If you offer them white bread or brown bread, then the decision might be different. No, but that's, that's silly because it was a completely open-ended question. Would you send your child to another school if one was available? Therefore, is there demand for a different type of school? And what they found was, on average, 8% demand in those 43 areas. This was conducted by the Department of Education. Um, so I would be very eager and anxious to see that happen as quickly as possible because I am an absolute believer in parental choice. I don't want an education system that, uh, in which the Catholic Church is a near monopoly. I don't want an education system in which the state has a near monopoly either. Can I broaden that out a little bit? Because mm. um, clearly this is uh, a debate about education. Do you get the uh, the impression that this is also a little bit of a culture war, that uh, the uh, debate about education is a proxy debate about uh, changing culture in Ireland? It is for some people. It's not for the average person. The average person wants to send their child to a good school. Um, what's driving demand for church-run schools in England is that they tend to be good schools. Um, now, there, again, there's various reasons you know, why they tend to be good schools. Um, uh, but they are good schools. Uh, so, you know, primarily what people want is a good school. Okay. One thing you said, uh, and, uh, this has been said by a million politicians and by probably quite a lot of newspaper columnists as well, uh, that parents want choice. I'm not sure they do. I think they want good schools. And if there's That's one good said. school. That's what I just said. That is, if you like, exhibit A in this discussion. But can I give you exhibit B? Because the school school system must respond to parental wishes. We, we, We now know what the parental wishes are in large segments of the country all right and and that's what we found and, and this is a whole variety of different parts of the country and different demographics can can i give you david can i give you exhibit b in this and that that is um the study by the catholic bishops conference that finds that more than 10% of people who self identify as catholics don't say that they don't believe in god you well, have to do, isn't it true isn't it true that you have to accept that some of this research uh 
gets the answer that it is framed to get. But I'm sure we're not going to agree on on what the answer might be uh, uh, if it was framed otherwise. But I just want to I want to broaden broaden this out a little bit. No, 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 no. I've got the challenge that assertion. I mean, you know, that particular piece of datum is irrelevant to the discussion we're having because people were specifically asked about the type of school they want and would they use a different type of school and 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 92 percent basically said no so whether they believe in god or don't believe in god or go to church or don't go to church the fact remains that in the area surveyed by the department of education under rudy quinn who wants x number of schools handed over to new patron bodies so this was driven by the Department of Education and Rory Quinn, found that 92% of parents in those areas surveyed do not want a different type of school. Okay, you, you've, made, you've, made, the, you've I mean, made that point. Yeah, and just, just to repeat, I want the Catholic Church to hand over whatever number of schools it takes to meet the level of demand that there is really out there for an alternative. Do you think that socially it's a good idea... To move, obviously, in you know, in previous decades, we were in a situation whereby most people went to the Catholic school. There was no option, and that reflected society. There was very little diversity in society. Is it really the best thing? Okay, you can say Catholic kids go to a Catholic school. Uh, maybe kids from a different religion uh, or of no religion go to an educate together school. Would you be entirely comfortable with, uh, there are about 50,000 Muslims in Ireland, would you be entirely comfortable with uh, Muslims only going to a Muslim school and not really having any profound contact with other sections of society before they're aged 18? Um, I, again, put parents into the driver's seat here. Um, I mean, I'm in favour of Muslim schools, if that's what Muslim parents want, and, and it's what they do want. Now, I mean, this business about this may lead to a lack of integration. Take France. Um, the system in France is almost completely state-dominated. Uh, the vast majority of Muslims in France go to state schools. Uh, what have we seen in France? Massive lack of integration of many Muslims, resulting, for example, a few years ago in riots on the outskirts of Paris. David, take, for example, the UK, whereby in recent months we've had 15-year-old girls who were born and brought up in Britain taking a flight to Turkey and crossing the border into Syria to become brides of jihadi fighters uh, with ISIS. Can you really say that risking that level of disintegration that a 15-year-old would do that, do you really think that's, that, that's um, appropriate? Two, two things. First of all, it is really, really very extreme to go from having a discussion about church-run schools. It's really a massive stretch to try and go from discussion about Catholic schools to ISIS. W- w- wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't you accept that if, that if, that if several dozen uh, British teenagers, as seems to have happened, go to, uh, go to Syria to fight, to? to fight, they went to, essentially all, they went to essentially all Muslim schools? If the Muslim schools are teaching radicalism, jihadism, all right, that mm-hmm. must clearly be stopped mm-hmm. in its tracks. Simple as that. Okay, that's that's fair enough, and I can accept that. Um, you said that this may be a kind of a culture war on behalf of some people, but not not no, no, on you yourself. Said that. No, you asked that question. Yes, I, yes. The great majority is not. Okay, so it, 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 you're accepted maybe for 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 a minority. Do you think that uh, people who are not Catholics 
would be justified in feeling a little bit of uh, um, victimization in situations where, and I'll give a couple of examples that came up on the previous interview. For example, uh, a I parent... Hope similarly, I hope you put similarly tough questions. I, 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 most cer- I, most, I most certainly did. You're welcome to go back and listen to it. it well, a situation whereby, for example, uh, a parent who didn't want their child to take part in the religion lesson, the school would only agree to telephone the parent five minutes in advance of the uh, religion lesson, which would be at a different time each day, and expect the, ch- the parent to arrive to to supervise the child uh, within five minutes. Another situation whereby uh, the ch- the, um, the the parent suggested giving the child a, a book to read in the corner of the class. Uh, the school said that that wasn't acceptable. Um, and the practice, which is across pretty much every single, I think, uh, Catholic primary school in the country, which is to have the religion class in the middle of the day to make it as disruptive and as difficult as possible, for example, for a child who's not Catholic to arrive late or leave early, as would be uh, possible if the uh, religion class was first thing or last thing. Okay, two points here. One is, um, uh, if a school is giving a parent five, five minutes notice, that's clearly ridiculous and unacceptable, and or the school has to be more reasonable. Number two, uh, just gets back to the overarching point, there needs to be fewer Catholic schools in the country, and more schools like Educate Together. David Quinn from the Ion Institute, thank you very much. Thank you. Never miss a show. Follow at Here's How Podcast on Twitter, and like Here's How on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. Ellen O'Malley Dunlop is the CEO of the Dublin Race Rape Crisis Centre. The Rape Crisis Centres have suffered a number of funding cuts recently. Ellen, can you give me an amount of uh, money that you have lost and what that means in your budget? Well, there are 16 rape crisis centres around the country and the uh, funding to rape crisis centres up to 2008 would have been around four million. Now, the... Most rape crisis centres have had cuts up to about 25%, some a little bit more, some 30%. And that is really um, very, very difficult for rape crisis centres to be able to respond to victims coming to the centres. When, when you say when you say a, a 25% cut of that 4 million, that's a 25% of the cut that you get from the, uh, of the funds that you get from the Exchequer. Do you have other funds as well? Well, all rape crisis centres would have to fundraise to make up the difference between what it costs to run the centres and what our statutory funding is. Mm-hmm. So in, I can tell you about the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, which is the centre... Of what, what, what proportion of that funding would come from fundraising? What proportion would come from the Exchequer? Two-thirds come from the Exchequer and a third comes from fundraising. And how much have you lost? We've lost 30% at the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and since 2008 the therapists and all working in the centre have taken cuts up between 5 and uh, 20% and they've been on frozen salaries since 2008. Can you give me an idea, because obviously um, some people will have been unfortunate enough to encounter uh, your services or to need your services. For people who don't know what you do, could you step me through what sort of service you provide? Well, we have a, a number of services. The we If we'll 
say a person has become a victim of a rape or a sexual assault and report to the Gardaí, they will be taken to the sexual assault treatment unit in the Rotunda Hospital, obviously to um, ensure that the person is all right physically and uh, to take evidence if they want to proceed through uh, the criminal justice system. We support the victim from the very uh, beginning. So we will be called out to the sexual assault treatment unit at any hour of the day. That's a 24-hour service we offer. We also offer a 24-hour helpline and the helpline is 1-800-77-8888. That's 1-800-77-8888 and there is always a trained person at the end of the line. So then we also offer ongoing therapy for victims who obviously would be traumatised after experiencing such a heinous crime perpetrated upon them. We go out to schools where we give school talks and we have an education and training department and that department has devised what's called a body right programme which is an add-on to the SPHE programme in schools and these are terribly important. This is the transition year, the um, social personal uh, health education Exactly. And these these programmes are so important because we work in small groups with young people. So it's really important that young people are appropriately educated around uh, their own bodies, how their bodies develop, and also the potential for violence Mm -hmm. uh, as a consequence of what's sadly so readily available nowadays, and that is pornography uh, that young people uh, are being bombarded with so often today. I I don't want to get into that. That's a a separate debate. But, for example, and you you wrote about somebody showing up in uh, A&E or a sexual assault unit and you then have a call-out service. Can you give me an idea of what uh, that counsellor would do when they're called out in in that circumstance? Well, obviously, they are meeting somebody who is traumatised and uh, the the trained uh, support person would know how to be with a traumatised person, would know not to be inappropriate in any way in terms of questions they might ask them. And they would also tell them of the other services that are available should they need them. So it's a very, very supportive uh, as I say, um, you know, re- re- responding to the person where they are in that moment of trauma. And how would that contrast to somebody perhaps who'd been sexually assaulted, maybe a woman who'd been raped, who had to deal with the hospital, the guardian, and so forth without that support? Well, um, I, I think, it, by the way, it's not just men, women who are victims. Men are also victims mm-hmm. of this crime. And uh, I suppose the difference would be uh, if you didn't know uh, how a traumatised person uh, is uh, and how this type of trauma affects an individual, you might think, for example, if you saw somebody who didn't seem to be affected by it, you might think there was nothing wrong with them. So a a trained person would be able to see beyond the facade that the person is presenting 
and know how to be with them. And somebody who wasn't trained to pick up those signs might be inappropriate and might say something. Uh, sure, it looks like, you know, you're OK. Uh, it looks like as if, gosh, you've dealt with this very well or, you know, that, that, those types of comments would be inappropriate. I understand. Ellen O'Malley Dunlop, CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you very much. Make your view heard. Dial 076-603-5060 and leave a contribution for the show. You can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at hereshow.ie slash call. Niall Ring is an independent city councillor on Dublin City Council for the North Inner City and he joins me on the line now. Just to uh, introduce yourself, Niall, you were reported in the Irish Independent a while back as coming from a Fianna Fáil family that you stood as an independent having lost out as a, at a selection convention and that you would have been fairly close to Bertie Hearn. Would it be fair to say that you're a Fianna Fáil gene pool independent? I would say that would be that would be absolutely true, William. Um, and just to just to for accuracy, um, I didn't lose out on a convention. Um, I was interviewed and uh, told that uh, for some reason I wasn't uh, what they were looking for. I think I didn't fit the the new criteria for Fianna Foilers. Um, fair, fair enough. The electorate obviously disagreed with them. Yes, indeed. Okay. Um, the uh, Dublin City Transport Plan is under discussion at the moment. What's your view on that? Um, the traffic plan, there's various good, obviously within any traffic plan, there's things that uh, councillors will agree with and which they will disagree with. And my issue on the on the thrust of the traffic plan is that there is, in my opinion, an, an anti-motorist bias coming through from city officials. T- t- tell me exactly what an anti- anti-motorist bias is. Well, I'm an accountant and I would be very aware of the economic benefit of having drivers coming into the city, into the city centre, doing their shopping, etc. Now, also, and then obviously the economic benefits of people actually driving between uh, registration tax, NCT fees, excise duty, etc. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm pro-motorist but I'm not anti-cyclist and I wouldn't like anyone to get that impression. But I believe there has to be a balance struck between the, the needs to have cyclists and more use of, cy- of cycling within the city because of the obvious benefits to, uh, in terms of less traffic jams. And- give, me, give me a couple of points that are specifically anti-motorist. Um, what I see as anti-motorists at the moment coming through is the Dublin City Transport Study, which is recommending the uh, exclu- exclusion of private cars from, ex- for example, College Green, Westmoreland Street, Delir Street, Suffolk Street, Bachelors Walk and George's Quay. This is the heart of the city, the heart of the north-south route, route in the city. And to make that, to exclude private cars from that, I believe is absolutely wrong. The second one that is uh, at the moment, which is uh, exercising people, is this um, the Amian Street, the Clontarf to Amian Street cycle route, where they're proposing to remove the footbridge at Fairview and mm-hmm. also making Amian Street one lane each way, which again is going to have a huge detrimental effect on motorists. Um, to go to the College Green one first, College Green was built at a time really before the car was invented. Uh, the amount of actual traffic that goes through there, that's to say car traffic that goes through there, compared to the damage it does to the social fabric of the city, surely uh, 
on a cost-benefit analysis, the cost of putting cars through there is very high compared to the benefit. Well, I would think that the uh, Dublin City Centre Traders Association would disagree with that. And I know Dave Brennan has come out strongly against the, this exclusion of private cars and this whole transport study. Because the facts are a motorist spends six times as much in a city centre shop as somebody coming in by bus or by bicycle or whatever. And like that's a, that's a real economic benefit. And don't forget, the city centre area accounts for 80% of the Dublin city rates. And we need that 300 million in rates to actually run the services in the city. Sure, sure but hang on a second. If people are offered a different mode of transport so that they can get into the city centre in ways that don't diminish the city centre as much, surely they will spend as much money? Um, well, I've yet to see anybody going in on a bicycle and bringing home a, a, a flat screen TV in the basket on front, to be honest, William. And I'm, I, I don't mean to be, to be trivialising it, but the facts are motorists go in, they park at an exorbitant rate, it has to be said, but again, that's money for the city. Um, they go around the shops, they drop in and out the shops, leave their things purchases back to the car and keep going if you've if you've come in by bus or by bicycle you're not going to do that i mean it's just it, it doesn't make any sense that a person in a, on a bus or on a bicycle will spend anyway near the same amount as a motorist um that may be the case but i have seen some research on i'll put it on the web page for this podcast but i think it comes from the Irish cycling campaign whereby uh traders dramatically overestimate the amount of car drivers that are coming into their uh, shops. That's to say they overestimate the proportion of their customers that are driving and they underestimate the amount of their customers that are taking the bus and cycling. So isn't that skewing the figures? Well, you know what they say about figures. Uh, well, one, figures don't lie. But I, in my opinion and in the Dublin City Centre Business Association's opinion, the car drivers do spend more. I mean, that makes absolute sense that they, of course, they spend more. I mean, you can skew the figures whatever way you want. But sure, that, that's, that's to say the people who drive now are people who are probably wealthier because they can afford a car and uh, spend more money. But that doesn't mean that they spend money because they drive. They have to drive because the other options uh, are pretty poor. And uh, and the, I'm not seeing the cause and effect there. I think that's more of an association, isn't it? Well, they they drive for very well. I mean, firstly, a lot of people drive and cycle and cycle for like I would cycle over to the city hall from Ballybock. That's or hop on the bus. So you would, there's, there are times when you can cycle and there are times when you absolutely need to, to be in your car. And I think that's, that's my point, that a lot of the times it's almost if the motorist is some sort of pariah, he's not welcome. There's a big signs up now for College Green. Forget about going col around College Green now. They've, they've somehow, without summarily um, suspended that bus that, that um, bus corridor. It's now 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day. It was in morning and evening rush hour. So the, the message goes out to motorists: you're not welcome. Well, and yes, they on, should be. The business, the businesses welcome them. The, the, there are many billions in this country spent on uh, road building and road maintenance, far exceeding the amount of money that um, that 
is gained from VRT and from motor tax. But from a, an aesthetic point of view, O'Connell Street is where the Republic was founded. It is the main street of our country. And at times it just feels like a four-lane motorway. Don't you think that there's an aesthetic point of uh, view that is important, that we want to have a city that is livable, that people can walk around and have a conversation without having to yell at each other? Well, when you talk about uh, O'Connell Street and the GPO and the birth of the Republic, of course, I, I agree that the, around the GPO and we have Moore Street and we're, we're now launching uh, the Parnell Street quarter. And these, these are all of great benefit. But if you look at O'Connell Street from it was 20 or 30 years ago, now you have the big centre aisle. You now only have two lanes in O'Connell Street either each way. There used to be three. I mean, that's all. And the, the main point there is 27 million people. That's the footfall for O'Connell Street every year. 27 million. Sure, but hang on now, hang on now. I, I just want to give you kind of a bit of a vision. You say two lanes each, each way. That's essentially the same as a four-lane motorway. But if you have that amount of traffic, you don't... What we see on uh, O'Connell Street is low-rent businesses, um, slot machine arcades, uh, fast food joints and the like. What we don't see on O'Connell Street is the sort of thing that you see in other high-quality city centres such as pavement cafes and people hanging out because it's a pleasant place to meet and talk with their friends. Wouldn't it be better to make O'Connell Street a place that somebody would be willing to hang out for and, you know, sit down and have a, co uh, have a coffee when the weather is good? I would 100% agree with that. And, and do, I know do you think that's compatible with having four lanes of traffic in the in the? I, I actually do, because O'Connell Street is one of the widest main streets in Europe, as you know. So there is room. They have a centre aisle there, which is magnificent. It's, it's the width of two or three lanes. Sure, I'm not, no, I'm not disputing the room. Path. I'm disputing the effect of having a very high volume of traffic there and in College Green. Well, it doesn't stop 27 million people going into O'Connell Street every year. Yeah, That's but they the don't stop and they don't spend much money. Of any street in Dublin, uh, in, in Ireland, actually. But, but now they don't stay in O'Connell Street. They go to O'Connell Street to get through it, to get to somewhere else, and they don't spend much money. O'Connell Street has several vacant uh, um, sites, and the ones that are occupied tend to be very low rent, uh, slot machine arcades and fast food joints. I agree. I agree with that, and I don't agree with fast food joints or slot machine uh, places in O'Connell Street. But at the same time, we have to, like, I know Dublin City Council ha have plans and had plans for O'Connell Street going way back, and the Carlton site, for example, hasn't been developed. Yeah. I know the Gresham Hotel is now in Nama. I know Clearies, we, well, we know about the debacle in Clearies. So, I mean, it's, well, the, O'Connell yeah, Clearies, Street has isn't, suffered, isn't but taking the cars example. off the street won't sort that out, William. N Niall, isn't Clearies an excellent example? Nobody wants to go from Henry Street across to Cleary's because it's such an ordeal. That's one of the reasons why Cleary's was in such trouble. Nobody would go there. They have very little footfall across uh, on the on the east side of the street and people find crossing O'Connell Street intimidating. I'm, I'm a fit, reasonably young male. I, I don't know what, uh, you know, perhaps more vulnerable uh, pedestrians would feel, but I am not comfortable uh, crossing O'Connell Street with the amount of traffic. Well, I, I, I can't, uh, like, we can't solve the problem by, by, by taking cars off O'Connell Street in their entirety. I mean, that wouldn't make any sense at all. I mean, people have to get from A to B by car, 
and that's and by whatever other means of transport. I mean, we have luckily enough now the Lewis is going to come up O'Connell Street, and that reduces that side of O'Connell Street, the west side, to one lane. And, and what do you think? What do you think pedestrianisation did for Grafton Street? Um, I think it improved it vastly. But remember, Grafton Street is a narrow street and wasn't is was never a main artery for cars. It was never a main artery. Mm-hmm. I mean, O'Connell Street is. I mean, it's the main street in the city. You can't. Well, I don't know. Maybe there are examples of places where they've uh, where they've done that. But but William, I'm not. My mind isn't closed to any suggestions that would improve my city because, like, as Dubliners, we, we all love our city. Anything that improves the city, I'm certainly open to. Well, Niall, Niall, I, Niall, I agree with you on that for sure, and thank you very much for talking to me. Okay, William, thanks a lot. I enjoy that. If you like the Here's How podcast, please rate and review the show on iTunes and other podcast providers. Share it on Facebook and Twitter. Tell your friends. But most of all, make your views heard. Call us on 076 603 5060. David O'Connor teaches transport planning and urban design at DIT. He is the program chair of the MSC in spatial planning and he's got a lot of experience in transport and urban planning. Uh, David, when you're cycling to work each morning, do you bring a hammer to hit yourself over the head to distract you from all of the bad planning that you have to look at? <laughs> I don't. Uh, you uh, sort of become inured to, to a lot of stuff. Uh, but I do enjoy either cycling or, or, or sometimes walking to work. Um, uh, and I'm very lucky I get to go through the city centre. Uh, and I think it's a great city centre, uh, but it just really needs to move to the next level. Uh, and I think that's the plan uh, in the uh, Dublin City Council's new city centre transport study. It's really about um, a, a lot of best practice in, in international um, city centre transport management. Uh, that, that's what I see in the, in the document. Well, I spoke to um, the Fianna Fáil, or excuse me, ex-Fianna Fáil councillor, uh, Nile Ring. He um, was of the opinion that motorists are being persecuted in some way. Is that how you see it? Uh, not, not in the slightest. I mean, nobody's been persecuted. I mean, they are, they've been persecuted at the moment because they're stuck in traffic, they're stuck in congestion, uh, and, and nobody benefits from an unplanned uh, transport environment. It simply doesn't work. Um, uh, but this is not a, an anti-motorist plan at all. Uh, if anything, it'll benefit them. It'll make uh, those that have to, that are, are, are required to drive in. There are business trips, there are emergency trips, there are family trips uh, where the car is the indispensable option. But at the moment, those people are stuck in congestion, stuck in traffic. Give, give, me a couple of, give me a couple of headlines as to precise line items uh, in that uh, plan that you think are a good idea. Uh, well, it's a, a really interesting strategy. Um, it's strongly place-based, so it's focusing, on, and that's something I think is like they're, they're kind of starting with the city centre. What kind of city centre we want to have and enjoy, and that's the most important thing is the city centre that people want to go to in the first place. Uh, so, an attractive city centre, uh, and they're looking at places like College Green. They're also taking places like uh, Bachelors Walk uh, and Aston Quay uh, and uh, Stevens Green at the, the top of Grafton Street. Uh, and they're planning very, very active, 
uh, and accessible but people friendly public plazas uh, and people talk about you know continental European cities that's what we're uh, we, we, Dublin has a hugely vibrant uh, retail core in Grafton Street and Henry Street uh, but getting to those places uh, is the problem And what, what does a vibrant uh, um, core look like what would, give, what would it be different uh, how would it be different from what we see today uh, well, they do visualise it in the study, and if you look at College Green, and if you look at the um, uh, Stevens Green uh, and places like that, um, uh, it'll be accessible by by tram uh, and bus and um, uh, cycling and walking. Uh, there'd be a nice place to be. More people will be able to get there. Uh, now, if you want to get there by car, you'll be able to do that, but you'll be directed straight into a car park, which will be on just on the edge, accessible from the edge, uh, and then you'll walk, you'll become a pedestrian. We're all ultimately pedestrians. Niall Ring was saying that um, College Green is an important uh, artery that you're cutting off a motor route through the city. Why not? It's a hugely important uh, public transport artery uh, at the moment. Um, 400 buses an hour are going through there. That's that's fact. That's this morning. Um, you know, those are Dublin City Council uh, traffic cam figures. That's colossal. That's actually the equivalent of, of 20,000 passengers per hour per direction by bus alone. They also want to put Lewis Cross City uh, going through it and, and retain a lot of the bus access. Now, you simply can't do that. The bus gate, you know, there's been lots of studies on this that has worked. Uh, and uh, city centre business has, has only thrived, uh, and you know the car parks uh, have been fine. Um, but uh, it's a, it's a really strategic um, bus uh, now tram, and everybody walks there, and it's it's a really it's not a pleasant place to walk. So they have to do something with that. That's you know if we have any pride in our city centre, uh, we have to do something better than that. So essentially, the plan is to completely remove uh, private cars from College Green. Um, well, if, uh, College Green as as uh, for through access, yeah. Uh, one of the problems is you have a lot of trips in the city centre that are unnecessary car trips. They're through trips. People aren't stopping. Uh, they're not stopping to spend a dime. Uh, they want to get to the other side of the city. When Lewis Cross City comes along, again, that's bringing more people through the city centre by public transport, and the Lewis has been a huge success. Essentially, what you'll have is a situation where you won't be able to drive through the city centre anymore you'll have to drive around it now it can be different studies in different parts of the city it can be anything from 40 to 60 percent of these trips are through trips if you eliminate those then the people that want to you know that really need to come in and and, and drive in uh, and shop they can do that much easier but actually you'll find a lot of those people will suddenly say actually you know, I might take the bus now, or I might take the tram, uh, or I might even cycle and walk because it's healthy uh, and it's a nice day. You know, you, you'll have a different situation. Okay, that's College Green. What about O'Connell Street? Uh, O'Connell Street, uh, there are different things happening. The really interesting one is Bachelor's Walk, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's um, that's going to be another bus gate uh, akin to the College Green bus gate. So if you like, we have our north-south uh, bus gate mm-hmm. at College Green. Now they're going to have an east-west one, uh, and that's really, I mean, actually the busiest bus corridor, the busiest transport corridor in Ireland is the North Keys uh, QBC. Uh, It's bringing in um, something like 10,000 passengers per hour uh, in one direction Mm -hmm. uh, in the morning peak. It's very, very busy. And the one uh, point, clearly you're a lot more expert than me in terms of urban planning, but what 
I compare Dublin to um, is the kind of the feel that you have in Dublin compared to other cities. Uh, in many cities, even in quite large streets, you would see it in Berlin or Paris, uh, you can sit beside uh, a street and have uh, coffee in a sidewalk yeah. cafe. Yeah. Uh, you can uh, kind of sit on a on a, a like a park bench or a street bench and have yeah. a conversation with somebody. Um, Cleary's closed down recently. I'm pretty convinced that one of the reasons um, Cleary's closed down is because it's across O'Connell Street from the main shopping area of, of uh, Henry Street, and most people are intimidated. They they won't. Uh, uh, they might not be actually afraid, but it's just so unpleasant to cross O'Connell Street that uh, Cleary's became an isolated uh, island on its own. There, would you think that's correct? Quite possibly, yeah. I, I think, that, yeah, you're right. Uh, I think there were also complex financial reasons. I think Cleary's was tied up in, you know, the financial crisis and some of the excess lending, uh, and I think they had financial problems. Uh, Cleary's does have its own sort of catchment um, from that side of the north inner city. People, yeah, uh, so... But if you look at the rest of O'Connell Street, for example, you have vacant uh, sites, you have burger joints, you have slot machine arcades. Uh, this is the street, you know, it's the birthplace of the Republic. It's the main street of Ireland. Ireland, and uh, it seems like, you know, kind of the, the back end of a shopping mall in, in some uh, godforsaken suburb. Yeah, it's something that the City Council really have to focus on. Now, there's there's other parts of this strategy. Some One thing that they're focusing on now, uh, the Lewis Cross City has been there for quite some time, so that will come down Marlborough Street. Mm-hmm. That, will make, that will make a difference. That will improve things. Uh, the other really interesting proposal is the uh, Parnell Square, the city library. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea of uh, a really, you know, a, a place for people on Parnell Square. David O'Connor, uh, planner from DIT, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Make your view heard. Record your own contribution and email it to podcast at hereshow.ie. You can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at hereshow.ie slash call. And that's nearly it for episode 11 of Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, published on the 15th of August, 2015. References for everything that I mention in the show are listed in this episode's pages on the hereshow.ie website. If you like the podcast, please go on iTunes and write a nice review. Also, please like the show on Facebook. Please follow at Here's How Podcast on Twitter. And, of course, subscribe to the show. You can use iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast app or software. You can do all of that right from www.hereshow.ie. Or you could just try and find some people who are not on holiday to talk to you and tell them how great the podcast is. The next show will be uploaded shortly. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.